revolution. We'll see that this is a revolution that is worldwide, um, and we'll see Jesus' heart for the world. So let's move along. Let's open up our Bibles. We're in chapter 2, verse 41. If you do not have a copy of the Scripture, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you will be able to find the text this morning. Uh, The Bible is partitioned into two major parts. There is the Old Testament, the New Testament. The New Testament is about the back third of the Bible, and it begins with Matthew, it moves then to Mark, and then to Luke. Easiest way to find the Gospels. While you're finding that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had your identity called into question? And um, when I'm talking about identity, I mean, I am Rob Wheeler. I live at such and such a place. I went to this school. I married Katie Wheeler. I am a citizen of the United States of America. I have such and such a credit rating. That kind of identity is the identity I'm talking about the facts of your life that can be recorded, traced, verified. There are times in life where we sometimes must prove our identity. I I became very aware of this when I was crossing customs into Israel this past summer. Um, If you've ever crossed customs before, they have this amazing ability to receive your passport and ask you questions with this blank expression on their face that neither tells you that they believe you or disbelieve you. Now, when Katie and I had passed our passports to the customs agent, we stood there for about 15 minutes watching everybody else run through customs having no idea as to whether or not we were going to go to a back dark room where I would just spill the guts about my life or hear welcome to Israel. And if you're going to go on that trip this upcoming summer, don't worry. Uh, We get stopped a lot because Katie just comes across as pretty shady. (laughs) Now, it's not wrong to check an identity. Uh, We wish that we lived in a world that we could take everyone's word for it, but let's just be honest, we can't. And there's plenty of scams out there. Who has received that call from the Social Security office, supposedly? Yes, I got that call 10 to 15 times last week with two-minute-long voice messages on my phone saying, this is the Social Security office, your Social Security number has been compromised, call us immediately and we can fix this, and then you can tell us all the information so we can steal your identity. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I know when I get a message like that that it is a scam, but my heart just jumps when I get that. That's how important our identity is to us, isn't it? Now, as we continue along in this study of Luke, we must understand the same thing is true about the person of Jesus. Jesus' identity makes or breaks everything that Luke has to say. And, And for this matter, it makes or breaks Christianity. If he is who he says he is, it makes all the difference in the world. If he isn't who he says he is, we have no business being here this morning. We ought to go off to the golf course or some other place and enjoy life. 
So Luke is going to take us through a series of steps because how do we identify someone? How do we verify an identity? Well, going back to my Israel story, I think there were a couple of factors involved. (laughs) The first is pretty simple. I have to be who I say I am. (laughs) You might laugh at that or think that's kind of an odd statement, but it's true. If I'm not who I say I am, well, then we've got serious problems, don't we? The second step in identity verification, I would say, is that someone would need to corroborate who I am. Uh, When we were passing on the U.S. side through customs, the security agents were great at mixing within the group and asking a question of this person and then going to another person to verify whether or not those two things link together. And if they don't, you've got a problem. Then I would say the third is that you would need a high authority, particularly in some kind of international transaction like this, to verify who you say you are. That's why we carry passports. So in this story, Luke's going to make a big claim about Jesus' identity. He's telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. But he doesn't want us to just take his word for it. He wants to take us through several examples that verify this for us. And the first example that we will see this morning is Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. And that's the first point. Jesus' identity is confirmed by Jesus. Now let's read that. uh, Verses 41 through 45. We'll pick up this story. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year... At the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, we can all, if we've had children and we've been responsible for children, relate to the flood of panic that occurs when a child is lost. This travel that Mary and Joseph undertook, it was an 80-mile journey from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. They were going to Jerusalem, their faithful parents, uh, to the spiritual truths that they understood, And they take their entire family down to Passover. They spend seven days there. But in this time, you don't just travel by yourself, especially at key times like this, uh, Passover. You travel in caravans. Just imagine what can happen in a caravan dynamic with kids. The idea is, in your mind, everybody's watching everybody, right? Uh, The parents are looking out not just for their kids, but everybody's kids. The kids are all running in packs together. You have this certain assumption in your mind that my kid is okay until that moment of panic when you realize he's not. And so they make a thorough exploration of the caravan. They look for Jesus. They find that he's not with the group. And then they determine that they have to go all the way back to Jerusalem, a day's travel. We pick up the story in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers. Did you hear that? Three days. 
At least they found him at the temple sitting with the teachers and not doing something else, right? Listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, let's just take a moment and and step outside of the drama of the story, okay? I want to make a couple of important observations about the childhood of Jesus. The first is this, that Luke is the only gospel writer that gives us a, a, a preview into the life of Jesus' adolescent years. Only example of this that we see in all the Bible And I believe that Luke is showing us two things about Jesus in doing this. The first is this, that Jesus was a normal 12-year-old boy. He was a normal 12-year-old boy. He ran with the other kids. He scraped his knees. He even got lost like other 12-year-old boys. The second thing that Luke is saying to us is he wants us to see that Jesus was not a normal 12-year-old boy. Remember what the angel had said to Mary about her son? He will be the Messiah. He is the Son of God. When you look at this interaction between Jesus and Mary, I mean, it just seems like an all-too-normal mother-son dynamic. No one's at fault. Mary was concerned. Jesus, in his 12-year-old mind, simply stayed behind, expecting his parents to understand One commentator shares these thoughts. He says, Perhaps we are to assume that 12 years of normal family life had blunted their awareness of the special character and destiny of their son. That's the tension with Jesus. That's the tension we'll run into all the time. Jesus is normal, but Jesus is not normal. Unlike normal kids, they find him in the temple having a sophisticated discussion with the best teachers in all of uh, Jerusalem and in all of Israel for that matter. And he's engaging them in a level of discussion that shows a depth of understanding of God's law. And if that's not enough, look at the way he responds to his frustrated mother. And he said to them, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Two important observations of that verse 49. Jesus uses the word, I must. This must is the Greek particle day. It is also called the particle of divine necessity. And I know you're all going to remember that for years to come. Luke often uses this. This is why it's important. He often uses this of God's chosen plan for Jesus. Uh, he, he, he's showing us that there was this divine compulsion that drove Jesus into the mission that God had for him. In fact, we see this later in Luke, in Luke 443, Jesus is preaching in the region of Galilee. His ministry is becoming explosive. People want to hear what he has to say. And then he goes up to his disciples and says, look, we got to get out of here. And they're like, what? Why? 
He says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Notice as well that Jesus calls God my Father. Now this must have been a shocking statement coming from the mouth of a 12-year-old boy. In saying this, he is claiming that God is his Father. That there is a unique relationship between this 12-year-old boy Jesus and the Heavenly Father. I mean, to capture the idea of how radical, how revolutionary a statement like this was, you have to look at the entire library, that 39-book library of the Old Testament, and see that God is only referred to as Father 14 times in all of the Old Testament, and He is never spoken of in personal terms like, My Father. And yet in the Gospels, Jesus only ever speaks of God as my Father. He does so over 60 times. What do we make of this response? Well, it's this. Jesus understood who he was at age 12. He understood himself to have a messianic mission to be the unique son of God. And remember, this is the first step in identity confirmation. I know who I am. I really have to be me. And at age 12, Jesus demonstrates that his mind had fully uh, understood the core of his identity, of who he was. Now, before we move past that point, Maybe we should ask another question. Why is it important that Jesus would come to us as a child? Why should he go through this progressive process of growing up? Why not just come down to us at the age of 30, start his mission, die on the cross, hallelujah, people are saved? Well, let's look at it this way. Think about a time when you've seen a son or daughter get involved with the family company. There's different ways that this can play out. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes that person is inserted into the higher levels of the business based upon the family relationship, and there is this attitude that seems to spread amongst the workers within the business due to the quick climb of the ladder where they think to themselves, does this person really have a right to tell me what to do? Do they really understand this business? Do they know what they're doing? Now, you can think of a better dynamic, can't you? You can think of a dynamic where a son or a daughter starts at the basement mailroom and works their way up. They understand every level of the company and what it takes to gain promotion through the ranks of the company. And in that case, those who are working with those employees tend to say, He's one of us. She understands this business from the bottom up. Friends, as I understand it, Jesus was willing to submit himself to childhood, the the creator God of the universe, to human childhood to demonstrate that he is one of us. This is why the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest. Now, he, when he says that, he's speaking of Jesus, who is unable 
to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yes, Jesus was one of us. And so we can look at his model. We can ask the question, what would Jesus do and model our lives based off of that? So that's the first step of identity confirmation. We move to the next step. Jesus' identity is confirmed by John. We move into the third chapter of Luke. You'll notice there in the first several verses that with a historian's precision, Luke places John's ministry in the context of uh, five different Roman officials, the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, which if you understand the Hebraic background of the high priesthood, you're saying to yourself, there's something not right here, that there's two high priests at the same time, there should only be one. And then the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which is most likely A.D. 29. So in the midst of all of this, all of the details that move the world, who's president of the United States at this time? Who's speaker of the house? Who are the influential religious leaders? We read verse 2, at this time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And by using that precise language, Luke is putting John's ministry in line with the classic Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. And he explains his prophetic purpose in verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The reason John is calling this nation to repent is explained in verses 4 through 6 through a prophecy. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now there... Luke is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. It was a widespread custom in ancient times for cities to widen roads, to expand infrastructure when a king, a ruler, was coming to pay the city a visit. So that they could come in with their big procession and, and get all the pomp and, and dignity and all the things, the trappings that these kings would want. Well, Isaiah presents to us a much grander vision than this. In that barren desert region in southern Israel, he envisions mountains being leveled and valleys being filled in this construction of a superhighway that would usher in the coming of the Messiah King. And that's John's job. Only he wasn't building a, a physical superhighway he was building for the nation a highway built upon repentance. You look at verses 7-9, through nine, you see what his main message of repentance was. He opens up the message, now get this, this one's a little hard to take, by calling his entire audience a brood of vipers. And then in this same message, he brings in this fiery rhetoric of hellfire into the message. Now, Let's just be honest for a minute. We don't like that kind of preaching. Uh, we have termed that kind of preaching hellfire and brimstone 
preaching. And, and somewhere along the way in the church, we've even said any kind of judgmental statements being preached from the pulpit has no place in church. It certainly doesn't grow churches. Any of the fastest growing churches in America, you don't see them growing because they said judgmental things all the time along the way. It's an unpopular message. But consider this. God's prophets in the Old Testament, if you read their messages, their messages were almost exclusively unpopular. Why? Because sometimes there are things that we do not want to hear. But they may be the message that we need to hear. So the Jewish people in this time, John's preaching to a people that were clinging to spiritual safety harnesses that were actually for them death traps. For example, they believed this. They believed that their ethnic identity was a fail-safe with God. They believed that I'm an Israelite. I have a backstage VIP pass access to God. I can kind of live however I want. And as long as I kind of follow through with the mechanical rote obligations of my Christian faith, I'm all right with God. But John comes onto this scene and he says, no, that's a spiritual trap. Ethnic identity does not make a person right with God. Some of you in this room have fallen into a trap like this. You know, there, there's all kinds of spiritual traps that I've heard expressed in different ways. For example, I've heard this spiritual trap. You know, I was in church from the time I was five years old, and I remember a preacher giving a message. I don't even really remember what it was about, but he said if I came to the front of the church, then I'd be saved. So I did. And I know I'm all right with God because I walked forward, and I did that. Or, or you hear things like this, I was raised in a home. My parents were really spiritual. I'm fine. Even though your life doesn't respect, reflect the same spirituality as the parents. Or, or maybe even this vague statement that gets thrown around a lot. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Just about every person in the world wants to say that. But when we examine that statement under the scrutiny of the Bible, the Bible says a different message. Friends, that's a trap. These are the types of thoughts that make us feel safe even when we're far from God. You may have grown up in a religious home. You may have been involved in church. You may have had the most religious parents in all of the world. But if you are not involving, your, involving God in your life on God's terms, His terms, not my terms, you're far from God. And that's why John says things like this. You think it's your heritage? God can raise up descendants of Abraham from the stones. John says, you think that you can live a dual life? Trees do not make apples and oranges. The idea there is if you're comfortable with sinning in your life habitually, you might not be an apple tree. You might be an orange tree. So John's message of judgment had a purpose, though. It's not just to beat people down, to leave people in this place of state where they say to themselves, well, I'm just undone. There's nothing I can do. I, I'm a sinner before God, and that's it. My life's over. No, the purpose of a judgmental message like John's is to waken, awaken a numb conscience. 
those types of spiritual traps, they can numb our, our spiritual awareness. But when the prophet would speak in judgmental terms, then people would have the response like this crowd and like these tax collectors and like the, the soldiers. They would come forth and say, what then shall we do? How can we be made right with God? Is this hopeless? Are we stuck? Or do we have to keep running the spiritual treadmill, exerting all of this energy and going nowhere religiously? And John comes to them with two messages. The first thing he says is, Live authentically before God. What is authentic? It is real. It is consistent. It is genuine. It does not seek to manipulate God. It does not seek to push God to the periphery of life. John says to the crowd, he says, share your tunic. Do you understand that there's something spiritually broken in us if we say that we love God, but we walk past someone who's naked and destitute and have no care or thought for them? Or if we don't do anything physically to take care of the need? He says to the tax collectors and to the soldiers, he says, be ethical at your job. Again, there's something spiritually broken in us. If I can go to church on Sunday morning and walk around with a big smile on my face and shake hands with people, and then Monday through Friday, God does not inform any decision that I'm making with my life. Be authentic. Be genuine. That's the kind of relationship that God's looking for. He also says to the people that you must wait for the better preacher. Now look there at verse 15. The people are questioning if John is the Christ. And this is very important because the Messiah is the one who can take care of the problems that, that John is diagnosing right now. And John doesn't mince his words. He says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And now we come to John's understanding of who Jesus is. Notice what he says. First, he says, Jesus is greater than me in every way. Remember, we, we noted last week that John's not even worthy enough to do the, the menial task of a slave for Jesus. There's a scene in the Gospel of John that's written by a different John, not John the Baptist, where in this same time period, Jesus' ministry is just starting to take off. And all the people that were approaching John are now on the other side of the Jordan being baptized by Jesus' disciples. And so John's disciples get, well, they get a little jealous of the entire dynamic. And they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing them and they're going to their church and not to our church. And John, listen to his response. It's so clear. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, that's biblical humility. Biblical humility is a right understanding of the universe. God on top, others before me, and then me. Our society has that all flipped upside down. Me, others, God. He also says that uh, Jesus' ministry will be far better. Verse 16, I baptize you with water. Now John's ministry of baptism, his preaching ministry, never saved a single person. Never made a single person fully right with God. Didn't have the power to do that. Just like baptism today doesn't have the power to save a single person. It's a a Christian act of obedience where we are dedicating our life and uh, uniting our life with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it does not save a person. But listen to what he says about Jesus' ministry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's this spiritual reality of Jesus' ministry that is far superior to John because Jesus' ministry does have the power to save. And not only does he have the power to save one person, but he has the power to save billions because he can address the inner brokenness. He can address the spiritual separation that has made us far from God. So this is the second step. Jesus understands who he is at 12. John, the greatest prophet, corroborates Jesus' greatness, corroborates that Jesus has the authority to save people from their sins. But then, the third step remains, does the highest authority recognize Jesus' identity? What does God have to say? And so our third point is that Jesus' identity is confirmed by the Trinity. As you look at those verses 18 through 20, you see that John's ministry ends tragically. He preaches an unpopular message to a king with a lot of authority, King Herod. Remember, that prophetic ministry, sometimes the prophet says things we don't want to hear, but things we need to hear. And it's so unpopular at times that it can cause persecution, even persecution that results in death. And that's what happens with John. So Luke takes us to that scene and then he moves the camera back to the life and ministry of Jesus. The spotlight moves off of John and the spotlight will remain on Jesus for the rest of this gospel. We see a picture of Jesus being baptized. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Friends, this section of Scripture in the Gospels is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Scripture. I hope you understand that. It is a a moment in the Gospels where we see the three persons of the Trinity relating to one another. This this passage is foundational to our understanding that God is one in essence. 
and his authority and his power and the very thing that makes God God. God is one, but he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have eternally existed in triunity. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see the three persons of the Trinity working together, working out this plan of salvation. And that plan continues even today as the three persons of the Trinity continue to work. Let's just look at this beautiful confirmation. First, we see this picture of the heavens being open and Luke doesn't tell us what that looks like but if you go back to the story of the shepherds and other instances where the heavens are opened in the scripture it is this idea probably that the angelic realm was seen for a moment in time in Jesus's ministry and then the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a like a dove now in all of scripture this has never happened before and guess what? You're going to hear me say that a lot when it comes to Jesus. Because he's one of a kind. There's no one like him. So the Spirit descends on Jesus, indicating that Jesus' ministry will be in the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is a mark of the Messiah. And through that ministry, when the Spirit was upon him, the ministry continues in a different way after Jesus dies and rises again from the, uh, the, the dead. There's a ministry of the Spirit that the Spirit is working right now in this room, works every day in your heart as a Christian. This ministry, J.I. Packer calls the Spirit's floodlight ministry. It is the Holy Spirit's job Number one key result area of the Holy Spirit is this, to make people aware of Jesus' glory. You've seen floodlighting that has been done well. The purpose of floodlighting is to show us in, in those times when it's too dark for us to see a building, the intricate details of the building, the unique dignity and beauty of that building, without the floodlight really being visible or on display at all. If it's doing its job well, you just see the glow of the light showcasing the main feature. That's what the Holy Spirit does all day, every day. The Holy Spirit says, look at him. He's the Son of God. He is God's sinless Son sent to save you from your sins. Don't get distracted from the other things. Jesus is the one who deserves all the glory. And the Spirit never departs from that role. You see, any ministry that focuses too much on the Holy Spirit and in some way places Jesus into the periphery of the ministry, does not comprehend what the Holy Spirit's number one job is. He makes much of Jesus. He enlightens our hearts to see Jesus. He leads us towards Jesus. Finally, we see the Father confirm Jesus as his beloved Son. This is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And as the Father speaks, these Old Testament messianic passages reverberate. Psalm 2-7, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Isaiah 42-1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And it also takes the mind to this 
moment in time in Genesis 22 when God spoke to Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And then if you know the story, God commands Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and to offer his son up. And in the last moment when he sees that Abraham's heart is obedient, he stays Abraham's hand. But now, we'll see that the father says those same words. And as we continue through Luke, the Father will not stay His hand for our sake. So the Spirit and the Father have both been clear. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus understood who He was at the age of 12. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, identifies Him for who He is. The Trinity confirms His identity. I hope you see now what Luke is doing. He's saying to you, you can read on. You're not about to get on another wild goose chase exploring some religious claims from another religious pretender. In fact, all the things that I'm saying about Jesus to you, you should really pause and think about these things and how they intersect with your life. Let's bring this home with a spiritual application. Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? His identity, I would like to say to you, means much for your identity. You see, this is a message that the New Testament affirms over and over again. Jesus, the Son of God, and because He's the Son of God, we can be adopted into the family of God, which means then we can take on Jesus' identity. You look at Galatians 3.26, and Paul says to us, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we live in a world that speaks often of identity. It should be something that we think about. Our identity is the core of our sense of self, uh, how we derive our self-worth. And our identity, I would like to suggest to you, is always rooted in something. In the non-West, they tend to root their identity in who my family is. I am who I am because of them. In the West, we reject that notion and we say something more along the lines of, I am who I determined to be. But I want to tell you this, that both lead to identity crisis. Identity rooted in family, we have rejected that because we have said that can be exploitative, it can create unhealthy feelings of shame when I don't measure up to what my family wants me to be or I don't become what they want me to be. But when you look at the other side of the coin, that identity that says, I can do it, most, leaves most of us feeling like failures because we can never measure up to who we want to become. I think that most of us have found ourselves in a place of life where we've actually just started saying, this is what life is, and I'm okay with that. Even though we had much higher aspirations, we were running the wheel, we were saying, got to succeed, got to move forward, got to get ahead. In Jesus, your identity is not measured by what others think of you or even what you think of you. In Jesus, your identity is not achieved. It is received. 
Friends, this is the identity that will revolutionize your life. In Jesus, you get to receive a relational identity that is based upon a very healthy father-son relationship. And if you say to yourself, I have no idea what that looks like, I've never had that in my life, well, you've got to get into the Bible and read the Scriptures because we see it in the Bible. And we'll see that this type of relationship is unconditional. Nothing you could ever do would remove the Father's love from you. You would also see that this type of relationship is transcendent. You don't lose it along the way when you lose your job or when your beauty fades or when physically you can't do what you used to do. Or finally, when you breathe your last breath, that identity remains firmly rooted in Jesus. Yes, that is why this is a gospel revolution. You can receive the identity that you were always meant to receive. So how do I receive that, you ask? Well, Paul told us in Galatians He said, through faith. Have you placed your faith, your hope, your confidence in Jesus? Have you said to yourself, I can't save myself, but Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior who shed His blood on the cross for my sins, paid the consequence, rose again from the dead, and in Him I can experience new life. Do you want that identity? child of God. That identity comes to us by putting our faith in God's Son. Would you bow your heads with me?